What is the U.S. Space Force and why do we need it? This is one of many questions Americans have as the new service stands up. I am your host, Bill Wolf, the president and founder of the Space Force Association. On this edition of A Space Pro, I interview retired Air Force Colonel Brian Yosh Yoshimoto, who has over 25 years experience working in the space domain. As an industry leader steeped in the mission, Yosh has a unique perspective on the importance of this new service. A Space Pro podcast covers topics from military, industry, civil, and education sectors. To gain a better understanding of what the U.S. Space Force is all about and why it is a critical component to our national security, please go to ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Air Force, Space Force, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government. Now let's listen in as we gain the industry perspective of the U.S. Space Force. Today, we are honored to have with us Brian Yoshimoto, goes by Yosh, who has 21 years of experience in the space community. As a recent retiree from the United States Air Force, he has supported both Department of Defense and the intelligence community, space acquisitions, largely as a member of the space control community. His extensive experience can provide us great insights as we look to manage space as a warfighting domain. Yosh, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks, Epi. I appreciate the invite. Yosh, as we get started, what do you think about the stand-up of the United States Space Force and U.S. Spacecom? Wow. So, first off, let me pause. You know, I'd, I'd like to congratulate the, the members of the Space Force on their first successful launch. I, I was able to watch AEHF um, and the, the Atlas rocket. It was a beautiful sight and uh, went very smoothly. So, I, you know, I'd like to say congratulations to the team for that first off. Um, I think that the stand-up was important. Uh, as we start to normalize space among the other domains, you know, the stand-up will help us ensure, you know, both the proper organization, the training, and the equipping of the force help us really drive towards integration across those other domains, which is going to be incredibly important. Now, I will say alternatively that there are some in the community, I believe, that wonder whether we should have stood up a new separate military department or whether we should have just combined all of the departments and created a force packaging type of construct as a U.S. military combined, right? But uh, personally, I think that the Space Force was a, a good and appropriate way to go given the time that we are in right now. No, that's good. You know, force packaging is going to be a big deal. And I think we're going to be struggling a lot with that. And it probably some of the reason why we're struggling right now to establish the culture is we don't understand force packaging. Could you, Absolutely. for the audience, you know, for the, the space audience, you know, what are, what are your thoughts on force packaging? How would be the best way to do that or some thoughts on it? So I, I think that force packaging really is a, is a going to take a, a lot of exercising of various mission vignettes. Um, we're going to need to look at the threats that are out there. We're going to need to look at the world situations. COVID-19 is a perfect example of, of how we need to look across a whole of government to formalize a response and be able to act quickly and authoritatively to address issues that are threats to national security. Force packaging is going to be the same thing. We're going to need to think ahead through some of these problems, whether it's a maritime problem, an airborne problem, a terrestrial problem, cyber even, um, or, or an issue that, that arises in space. We're going to need to look at it and understand 
how are the domains supporting each other? How are we looking across the joint prioritized target lists? How are we making sure that we can act in both a supported and a supporting function across those domain boundaries and even across geographic combatant command boundaries? So uh, force packaging is going to have to evolve significantly, in my opinion, as we start moving forward with, with the new way of the world. No, I com completely agree. Uh, and this gets into a little bit of the in-domain fight, if you will, and the terrestrial supported domain fight. Both, both are extremely important and we need to cover down on both and both have implications. So that, that force packaging is gonna be extremely relevant as we move forward. You know, and, and really what you're talking about is normalization, you know, because we've done this in every other domain for, you know, several hundred years. And so Absolutely. how does this change? And how do we normalize so that the space community can can be part of that discussion as well? So I think there are several things that we can do to normalize, right? Um, first is we need to create the understanding of what are the inter interdependencies between those domains, right? To do that, we need to, to educate. We need to educate through the academies. We need to educate through the, the Reserve Officers Training Corps. You know, build these future leaders from the get-go um, with some coherent you know, thought processes embedded in them as junior officers or as junior enlisted members, right? The Air University, the National Intelligence University, et cetera, all of those present prime opportunities for us to engage and educate. Additionally, we can do training through joint, uh, joint or coalition exercises. We can work um, during those training exercises to integrate things like commercial capabilities. We can do outreach, you know, across the COCOMs, across uh, the other, you know, components of the Air Force, Cybercom, the, the other services, you know, having teams that will actually go out and present space capabilities, both at the unclassified and at the classified level, so that people can understand across those organizations how space can integrate into those, into their missions. Um, I think that's in, an important first step of uh, helping people understand the interdependencies. The other things that we need to do are integrating with existing doctrine and processes. For a long time, for instance, uh, SSA is a prime example. Space situational awareness. What does that mean? We've actually recently made the change from space situational awareness to space domain awareness, specifically because we were trying to align towards doctrine that is, is service independent. Right, so we have air domain awareness, we have maritime domain awareness, um, those types of thought processes so that we can communicate better um, and have a, a, a basic understanding of what we mean with our terminology. Those simple steps help us to integrate across the forces. Better integration into the joint planning processes. Right now the AOCs have, have a couple of space liaisons in them. How do we build those teams? Um, how do we ensure that our, our ground assets or adversary targets that affect the space domain are on the joint integrated prioritized target list? What is our uh, critical asset list, our defended asset list? How do we better integrate operational intel into the fight on a timeline that's actually relevant to the fights that we need to, to take on, right? Another aspect, uh, a security. So for a long time, we've heard people like Hyten say, hey, space is overclassified. 
in my career, I got to make recommendations on how we would actually bring down the classification of a lot of these space control capabilities. And that helps tremendously if we can do that, because you can, you can better integrate those capabilities into the, the training and operations process. You can better develop your strategic messages. It, the strategic messages help you when you're looking from a whole of nation perspective, looking across the dime, right? The diplomatic, informational, military, and economic types of national power that we have. The ability to communicate that we have a capability or to demonstrate that we have a capability is going to be very powerful as we move forward in the future. And then the, the last one that I, you know, just off the top of my head is defining the appropriate authority levels. The airborne community or the, the other domains have predefined ROEs. They have authorities that are pushed down to the appropriate combatant commander levels to allow them to actually fight a fight on a timeline that makes a difference for their troops, right? Mm -hmm. The space community has, has largely, because of the strategic impacts, been held up at the SecDef or POTUS level. We're not going to go there every single time we have to pull a trigger in a space fight. Um, so we're going to need to predefine and push down those authorities to the lowest level possible so that we can actually fight the fight and be successful. You bet. Hey, on that, I, I think about this quite a bit. I wonder if when they developed the first fighter aircraft, if all of that authority to execute the mission of that fighter aircraft was held at the highest level and it took you know, repetition a friend of mine says scar tissue and calcium deposits, you know, for that pilot to go out and fly that jet to, to get the necessary tactical expertise to be afforded the authority to execute that specific mission. And I wonder if it, we need, just need to do the same thing in space where we allow the tactician to go out and do their job, fail, debrief, come back, and then make recommendations on how to evolve the technology to support the mission. And absolutely. those authorities then gets pushed down. Absolutely. And I, I know I'm balding and I'm gray, but I'm not old enough to be back in the World War II time frame or the World War I time frame, right? But uh, uh, I, I think you're absolutely dead on, Bill. Um, we're going to have to work through these. It's going to be a long and arduous process. Um, we're going to have to get commanders in the SecDef and the POTUS comfortable with our capabilities in the space domain. And we're going we're gonna to need to basically set that, that standard that says, hey, we can do this mission and, and you don't have to handhold us or, or you know, we don't have to say mother may I every single time. Um, exactly. But it's going to take a while. Yes, sir. Yes, that's good. You, you mentioned space domain awareness. That's, uh, that's a big one. And it's funny because, you know, people just look in different cultures, they'll say it's just situational awareness. But we in the space community had to say, Space situational awareness so that people understood that we've got to stop thinking terrestrial terrestrially and think outside our current terrestrial bounds and think about the space and what the situational awareness is in space. And you mentioned that it was changed to the space domain awareness. What are some other terms that we have to think about in the space mission that align to other domain uh, mission sets? So space domain awareness is the first one you've already mentioned. Uh, space superiority is going to be another close one. Um, and that's basically, you know, aligning to all of the other domains. You know, I looked up JP314 and JP301, right? I just wanted to make sure that, that air superiority and space superiority were actually aligned in doctrinal definitions. And 
luckily they are. And in layman's terms, it's, you know, our ability to dominate in space, do our mission, and if needed, prevent others from doing theirs, right? That's, that's kind of the layman's term. Now, I would say that just saying space superiority is, is that's not going to get us anywhere. It's, it's all about how do we actually achieve some of those effects. So I guess to get back to your question, space domain awareness, space superiority are probably the two biggest command and control communications, those types of uh, issues that are going to look across domains. How do we integrate? Those are going to be some of those key terms that we're going to need to worry about as we move in. Yeah, no, thank you. That's good. Also, Yosh, you, you brought up a point about having a team to go out and determine what space effects are needed in the battle space across the different combatant commander areas of responsibility. And that brings up a a really good point uh, about how do you determine when air is a domain that needs to be supported by space and space is a domain that needs to be supported by air? How do you kind of work through those and and those challenges that currently exist? So so I'm not sure that that air is going to be supported or space is going to be supported unilaterally, right? I think those things are going to happen concurrently uh, and it's going to be dependent on the mission that's, that's occurring within each of those domains. Um, you know, if, if we are looking at special operations forces ingressing uh, through hostile territory and, you know, space needing to provide some overwatch types of capabilities, whether it's ISR, whether it's communications or timing or or navigation, right? Um, Obviously, those are going to be supporting that terrestrial fight. Uh, Likewise, if, um, God forbid, if if China launches another one of their direct ASAT, you know, like they did in 2007 and 2013, um, the ability for us to rely on terrestrial or air, air or maritime domains to target some of the, the Chinese SOCI or to, to look at um, how do we negate some of those capabilities uh, is gonna be important. And, and during those missions, right, space will be the supported function. <clears throat> Excuse me, you talked about exercises. Have you seen that play out in any exercise effectively? So uh, we did a Corona TTX uh, tabletop exercise uh, a couple of years ago. The Space Security Defense Program Office, um, SSDP, actually led that. Uh, Got classified really quickly, but I guess what I will say is um, we looked at the the operational plans in the Pacific Theater, um, and we realized that without a space overlay, the plans were essentially null and void. Right, so we did a lot of work over the last two to three years to to look at how can we rewrite those operational plans to overlay space and the space capabilities that that we bring in uh, to the fight across, you know, to the multi-domain fight and make sure that those other domains are successful. That's probably the best example of uh, space support to other domains that I could um, point two that has actually been exercised, and that was exercised at the National Space Defense Center. Oh, that's great. That's uh, that's great insight because I, I know there's a lot of people out there wondering, you know, as we stand up, as the Space Forces stood up, and this organization stood up to support and advocate on, on behalf of the Space Force, you know, what does that mean? What does space priority mean? And what are we doing as a nation to ensure that we're covering down on all the various mission sets that need to be covered down on. So that's a perfect example uh, to provide to 
anybody who's questioning what we're doing, that's, that's a perfect example of exactly what we're doing to ensure that we're ready and prepared for a fight that transcends into space. I've got a note here that says something about a sniffer story. Can I ask about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so we moved to Colorado in uh, early 2017, and, and one of my friends from Air Force Institute of Technology was a B-1 pilot. Um, we had actually worked on our curriculum together, and he was out here training at the academy, um, teaching you know, the, the flying courses and, and all that kind of stuff. And we went over to his house for a 4th of July barbecue, and uh, he pulls me aside and he goes, hey, Yosh, um, you know, I'm hearing a lot about space lately and uh, the threats to it. I'm, I'm hoping that you guys, please tell me you guys are doing the right things. Because I will tell you, based on my time in Syria, when I'm flying the B-1, there are no less than five or six times from pre-flight through my mission when if I don't have a space capability, I am literally just burning holes in the sky. That really drove it home for me. That was, um, that was a, a turning point in my career where I said, look, this is, this is really actually important. You know, this is important to the success of the mission. It's important to make sure that, that guys and gals are coming home safely. Um, we need to make sure that space is there. And, and all of the space resiliency capabilities that have been talked about in the news by, by General Raymond and General Hyten um, for the last two to three years all point to successful accomplishment of the mission, supporting those other domains. It's not about space for space's sake. It's about making sure that those capabilities are there to support the men and women that need to come home safe. Yeah, that's the great word. Yeah, so. yeah I like it. Thanks for that. Um, it, you know, I, I love hearing stories, and I'm sure our listeners do as well. Um, you, you mentioned space superiority, and we talked a little bit about it and what it means. Uh, really, the next the next question that people probably have is, what do we need to achieve space superiority? I hope you're uh, buckled down to your seat. That's a long answer there. Hippie, uh, there are a lot of things that we need to achieve space superiority. So first and foremost, right, I think that in order to, to achieve space superiority, we're going to have to get towards seamless integration of all the capabilities in a systems of systems construct. Uh, in the air domain, you know, the F-22, the F-35, every shooter is a sensor, um, supports battle space awareness, supports them uh, flying their missions uh, successfully. Um, we're going to need to do similar things in space. We're going to need to integrate space force packages that are supported with other capabilities from other domains to enable us to defeat threats or to negate threats. Um, and if need be, um, bring the fight to the adversary that's trying to, to take out our capabilities in space or in other domains, right? <clears throat> A key aspect of that is going to be command control and communications. So again, pointing back to the F-22 and the F-35, when they implemented their, their metal and their, uh, their IFIDL data links, we realized that those two aircraft couldn't talk to each other. And I, I believe it was Northrop Grumman that actually had to, to come up with a solution of overflying a Global Hawk, which is not a cheap aircraft, right? Just to do a translation between those, those aircraft. 
that's not where we want to go in space. We want to have predefined APIs. We want to understand how we're going to communicate with things. Um, there's, there's an example out there right now that's in work. It's a program called Blackjack. This is a, 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 a large uh, propagated uh, LEO constellation that is looking at path agnostic comms. And I say path agnostic comms is, that's a very important thing. So if we can terminate, for instance, if we look at cell phone towers on the earth, right? If I could cut off your cell phone tower and you could not talk to anybody while something was going on, that would be a pretty big issue, right? But cell phone towers are path agnostic comms. We bring down one cell phone tower, you're gonna, your cell phone is gonna roll over to the next strongest signal and look for another path. That's what I mean by path agnostic comms. Now, if we can get there for space, we can assure communications and control with our satellites and with those capabilities. Moving forward, we know that the Army is also interested in tactical command and control of some assets. Maybe they wanna take a picture of an AOR to make sure that their forces are gonna be able to go in safely. Path agnostic comms are types of things that would enable that type of a construct. Um, open mission systems, unified command and control interfaces, OMS-UCI. That's, that's another standard that's out there. We're moving towards that. It's actually been directed across uh, U.S. Space Force for the future systems. Um, moving towards automation, uh, tipping and queuing, uh, in integrated, or, uh, sorry, indications and warnings and sensor handoffs, right? How do we get there? Right now, a lot of it's man in the loop of, hey, I saw this over here. Why don't you guys take a look? Well, in a rapid fight, that's, we're not gonna have time for that. So we need to move towards that automation. Big data analytics is another key one. But I will say that we don't have the ability to get after big data analytics until we have big data. And you're part of that solution, Hippie. With the unified data library, right? Um, you guys are actually trying to collect all of the data into a single repository, make it discoverable, make it exploitable. Right now, there's a couple of other you know offerings out there. You, you've got GovCloud over at the NSA. You've got C2S with CIA. Um, they're doing similar things. And I'll say, you know, for for better or worse, right? We need to look at all of those um, capabilities and figure out how do we integrate them. How do we how do we create a best of breed from all three of those? Um, part of that is I think adding in an exploitation layer. Uh, so right now, a lot of these data lakes are, are literally just holding the data. And then everybody with their own mission is developing exploitation capabilities, but they're not sharing those exploitation capabilities. So I think the next step is how to create an exploit library that's cloud-based so that, you know, whether I have a, a DIA mission or a, uh, an Air Force mission or an Army mission, I can go to this cloud and pull out an exploit that allows me to conduct my mission, right? Um, mm -hmm. yep. Breaking down stovepipes, that's gonna be another one to get after uh, the space superiority. So, you know, I talked about the Unified Data Library, C2S, GovCloud, but how do we actually do that? And in my head, um, what we have is, um, if you look at the stovepipes, uh, consider those columns in the center of a page, right? At the top of that, you would have this, this unified command control interface, OMS-UCI, with the C2 layer above that. 
on the bottom, you would have the, the data library that every program or every stovepipe is dumping their data into. And then below that, you would have the exploits. Um, beneath each one of those stovepipes, we're going to need you know, a common site picture of the cyber vulnerabilities across the enterprise. So I would put in the test access points, and we're actually working towards that uh, for the cyber defense correlation cell. Um, that is a, actually a simple architecture that I believe can break down the stovepipes with you know, un unifying those stovepipes at the command and control layer and at the data uh, uh, export layer, right? Um, and, mm -hmm. and the stovepipes can actually stay the same. You know, you just put a wrapper around them for essential, for all intents and purposes. Um, let's see. Uh, so I've, I've covered stovepiping. I've covered cloud-like architectures. I've covered common site picture for cyber. Um, another, another big one for space superiority is going to be how do we look at our architecture and, and reformulate that? So historically, because of the cost of getting to space, we have created large behemoth satellites. These things do multiple missions, but they also present a very juicy target, right? So, so while those missions may be exquisite, and yes, we will still need those as we move forward, we might need to think about how do we disaggregate the architecture. Um, Doug Lavera was a huge proponent of this, and I believe he still is. Um, disaggregating the architecture to look at, you know, uh, synonymous capabilities, maybe with not as much much exquisite level of, of capability, but enough to get us there. Um, I would I would call it uh, you know mixed architecture. And then parts of the other another aspect of that that I would bring in is is resiliency through partnerships. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about international partnerships. I'm talking about commercial partnerships. These types of partnerships, in my head, actually provide a little bit of deterrence for a potential adversary because now instead of just targeting the United States government, now they're targeting the United States government and its industrial base or the United States government and a mission partner like Australia or Britain or Canada. Um, when we look at that, you know, that potentially brings more people into a fight. And, and if I'm a country, do I necessarily want to do that? So, um, not only does it keep our other large behemoth satellites safe, but through this mix of an architecture, we actually inherently build up a little bit of, of uh, uh, dissuasion against going into a fight in the first place. Um, industrial, industrial base and supply chain issues are gonna be key. Uh, this is another one that we're seeing right now, right, with COVID-19. Um, supply chain through China is basically shut down. And a lot of those small parts and, and pieces that we would think about using, um, whether it's for space or another industry, right? Those are just not coming in. So that just underpins the importance of having a strong US industrial base that can actually manufacture and deliver these capabilities that we need as a nation. Um, and then, uh, another one is uh, the ability to rapidly reconstitute launch. Uh, or reconstitute our capabilities with launch. So I know that DARPA has a launch challenge going on. A friend of mine, Todd Master, has actually been running that. That uh, They tried a launch attempt, I want to say, two to three weeks ago. Uh, unfortunately, the, the competitor was unsuccessful. They had to scrub their launch at the last minute. But the thought process was there. And, and laying in um, that capability with industry, I think, 
think is going to be important because if if we do unfortunately go to war and you, you've heard the term space pearl harbor right we're going to need to be able to reconstitute those capabilities again to support those people that are that are out in the field deployed across the world um hey let me uh, let me Chime in. I don't know DARPA and what they're working on, <clears throat> so I'm not going to presume to understand the nuances associated with that. But it was funny you bring that up, uh, the launch uh, issue. And I had a uh, conversation with one of the bosses I used to work with, and uh, a couple of the wings responsible for the launch mission, uh, you know, representatives from those organizations. I remember sitting in the room and I asked, Are we always going to be a land based? Space launch capability, or are we going to move to an air-based space launch capability? Meaning, hey, how quickly can we get this up? I mean, we've demonstrated this technology in the past, where you take some air capability, put some rocket under the wing, get it up to altitude, launch the rocket, and now within maybe a, a few hours, you've got an on-orbit capability that's ready for for checkout to provide that resilient architecture. Is that and, and if you can't talk about it, great, but I know that's what people think about is, hey, is that something we're working on or is that something that's feasible? Uh, I'm just curious. So so there's a lot of uh, different thoughts on that. I, I think it is feasible. Um, there was a, a small company uh, called Microcosm when I was working in LA, and I, I don't want to market them necessarily, but um, they had a concept for a containerized launch vehicle that you could basically ship to a, a bare site, uh, no infrastructure. Um, the, the container would lift up on rails and you could launch, uh, I want to say it was like a 300 kilogram satellite to LEO, right? That That is a rapid launch capability. Now, you have to remember though that just because we have a rapid launch capability doesn't mean we have anything to put on top of a launch vehicle, right? So unless the United States is going to develop and build a whole bunch of hangar queens, which I don't, honestly, I don't see happening. You're not going to have rapid reconstitution in the order of hours like you're talking about. Um, gotcha. That would take a significant investment uh, up front, you know, with technology sitting in a hangar. And, and while that technology is sitting in the hangar, technology is evolving around it, right? So um, I'm, I'm not sure that the U.S. would go that way. Um, maybe for one or two, you know, bare bones types of capabilities, right? Uh, they might do that, but I can't see them doing that on a large scale. Gotcha. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. And you, you're talking about space priority. Want to make sure we we covered all the the concepts you wanted to get out there about space priority. Any any other issues we need to cover to ensure that we gain and maintain space priority or have the ability to do that? So the only, the only other one that I think I would say is space superiority is not just a space capability, right? Um, I, I think that for us to fully achieve space, pace, space superiority, it's going to have to be a full spectrum approach. And that means looking across, again, those national uh, instruments of power, the dime, to make sure that we're, we're um, addressing the, the issues in the world that need to be addressed to prevent threats to space in the first place, right? Um, that's, you know, strategic messaging, deterrence. How do, we, how do we get people to wave away from actually starting wars in the first place? 
I don't think anybody in the military wants to go to war, right? We train to go to war because we want to maintain the peace. I think the same is to be said for space. Just because we stood up the Space Force and U.S. Space Command does not mean that we're warmongering. It means that we're trying to prepare for the fight, hoping that we never go there. Right. No, that, that's, that's spot on. And we, we covered and glossed over just a little bit about launch and capabilities and how we get those capabilities. And then we, we went a little bit back and talked about how initial fighters were acquired from an acquisition standpoint, and you've got you've got experience in the acquisition world. So, from an acquisition standpoint, what's your what's your thoughts on whether or not we've got the appropriate acquisition system to support uh, the space force and its warfighting requirements? Well, that's a that's a deep question. So, I think that uh, General Thompson. First off, I think General Thompson has done an outstanding job with the organization out at SMC. Uh, modifying that into SMC 2.0. He's really driven a culture change out there. Uh, and the way he's constructed an organization, uh, I believe, is better aligned to serve the warfighter, right? They've got Colonel Russ Tehan looking across the, the as a portfolio architect, making sure that the entirety of the Space uh, Missile System Center portfolio interacts and, and works together to support that end um, for the warfighter, right? Now, I will say that the Space RCO, the Space Rapid Capabilities Office that just stood up, as well as the Space Development Agency, they also have uh, you know, been looking at some of these tough problems, and they're doing some great things. They're moving at a very rapid pace. Um, but I need to, to mention that, in my opinion, we need to be wary of, of internally focused enterprises. So within U.S. Space Force, over so in Building One on Peterson, we've got the Enterprise strategies and architectures office and they're looking at you know the the space force architecture at the nro you have the systems engineering directorate looking across the nro's architecture you have a nasa architecture you've got the space rco architecture you've got the smc architecture you've got the space development agency architecture and other cats and dogs right with the exception of maybe SAF SP, look trying to look across everything with a what we've called the space control roadmap, which looks at all of the capabilities across the DOD and the IC to the extent that they can, again, with classification limitations, right? Um, I don't think that anybody is looking at it from a holistic national level architecture. And I think that's an incre incredibly important thing to say because as we start looking at how these systems work together if we have resiliency capabilities that need to defend other organizations capabilities we need to understand what those capabilities limitations and cap uh and and uh for instance uh delta v right the the amount of, of fuel that they have to do maneuver we need to understand those and that those need to be part of a national level architecture. Um, and how do they support the other domains? Again, is another piece, right? Um, if we look at uh, NASA weather assets supporting terrestrial fights, is that an important capability that we need to protect? Um, that's, that's still to be determined because I'm not sure that anyone's taken a look at that. Um, so I would argue that there needs to be enhanced communication. I know that SMC and 
U.S. Space Force are, are talking quite frequently, but um, my concern is looking across the other departments um, to make sure that we are communicating our intent and getting towards a common end state. I think that's going to be incredibly important. Um, moving on towards a different subject for acquisitions, uh, Dr. Roper recently uh, with the NDA 16, you know, pushed out the mid-tier acquisition. You know, it was Section 804, and then it was coined now mid-tier acquisitions. Um, the guidance for that is still evolving. I, I would say that program offices and, and the, the MAGCOM, you know, now U.S. Space Force, don't necessarily understand fully what can be tailored and what's really required versus the traditional JSIPs process. Um, you know, looking back on this, is this just the next evolution of, of acquisition improvement, right? We've had total system performance responsibility, we've had TQM, we've had faster, better, cheaper, pick two, right? Um, each one of those approaches are good for very specific things. And I think it's important as a program manager to look across the tool set, whether it's JSIDs or MTA or or even TISPR or TQM, right? We, we need to look across that tool set to our current acquisitions and our current problems and apply those. I don't know if you can hear my daughter, sorry. Yeah. She's <laughs> Welcome to working at home in the 21st century, right? <laughs> so I apologize for that. Um, but getting back, you know, I, I think that we need to look at, at the specific acquisition problem and we need to apply the best practices regardless of what the, the words of the day are, right? We need to look at the full, the full tool, tool set and make sure that our program managers are educated in those tool sets and that they can implement those tool sets at the appropriate times. No, that's, that's great. And I tell you, um, this is near and dear to my heart. I, I, I watched it uh, when I was stationed at one of the locations. I had the opportunity uh, to watch how the Air Domain did a lot of its acquisition process and how uh, the testing tactics training informed the acquisition because the tactician was able to get in front of leaders and say, listen, if I don't have what I need to do my job, I can't do it. You're asking me to do the air superiority mission, but I don't have the tools necessary, either the material tools that you would buy through the acquisition chain or the non-material tools, which is the tactics that you would employ to negate a threat or mitigate a threat. And so, you know, I, that, that's, I'd like to spend just a couple minutes and get your opinion on how, how do we then turn the acquisition community in such a way so that we get the warfighter, the, the person who's actually accomplishing the mission, the tools they need to do their job. Absolutely, that's, I mean, that's, that's the important thing that a lot of acquisition people overlook, right? Hey, I'm supposed to build this system, let me go build the system, and they, they completely forget to, to go and ask the warfighter, what do you need the system to do, right? Um, that, that's probably one of the biggest problems that we have. And, and moving forward, I think it's going to be increasingly important for U.S. Space Command as it stands up um, to be a driver in their, their tech needs process and the, the integrated priority lists and to go out and market those across the space acquisition centers, whether it's SMC or Space RCO or Space De Development Agency, right? 
they need to have somebody that's that's overtly communicating their needs and advocating for their needs to the acquisition community. And then the acquisition community and the warfighter need to work together to build a plan and advocate that through the budget process so that those, those needs can get funded. Um, the, the acquisition, you know, on the flip side is going to need to host um, operator users groups, right? They're going to have to bring in operators and get rapid feedback on their developments, kind of like a sprint uh, would, would occur in software development, right? You're going to want to start thinking about those processes for capability developments as a whole. Um, hey, this is where I'm going with this program. Is this still going to meet your, your needs? Right? How, how is your operational site picture um, evolving over time as we go through this acquisitions? Uh, acquisitions aren't necessarily fast. You know, they can be, but for a, a large majority of systems, they're going to take years. And you know, if we look back at the last five to six years, the space community has evolved significantly. I would imagine they're going to continue evolving over the next five to six years the acquisition community is going to need to keep pace with their changing and evolving requirements as warfighters um, so that, you know, in five or six years, we don't provide them a capability that would have been perfect for today, um, but is useless then, right? Um, so we're going to need to look at, you know, how do we bring those guys in? And it's not just the operators, right? The test community needs to be involved. The training needs, community needs to be involved. Um, luckily, we've got some outstanding people out in the military right now. I, I, you know, a couple of names I'll throw out there is Major Kenny, he goes by Slash Groslin, and uh, Captain Jolly Rogers, right? Those guys are phenomenal. They basically helped stand up the, the WebTAC processes for the space community. They've rewritten JP314 um, to make sure that, uh, you know, all of the space doctrine is, is captured as we're evolving. Um, my hat's off to those guys. They've been doing phenomenal work. Um, but developing the weapons and tactics training from the get-go in parallel with the program development and acquisitions is going to be key. You know, standing up and, and codifying the space testing training range so that our, our space warfighters have an ability to go out and exercise. And, and looking back earlier at our conversation of pushing down the authorities, it's going to take that repetition and that exercising and the training to get the commanders comfortable and allow those authorities to be pushed out. So all of that has to take place. And I think a lot of that hinges on, on the acquisition approaches that we take as a community. No, that's, that's spot on, Yosh. I appreciate you going through that. And, and, you know, one of the ways the Space Force Association, I think, can help with that is we are looking at hosting the Space Warfare Symposium in October here in Colorado Springs at Peterson Air Force Base to fall in line with the Space Force Weapons and Tactics Conference. So we are in discussions right now with senior leaders to try to make that happen so that we can bring those two communities together with a focus being on the warfighting mission. So that's one of the ways the Space Force Association is helping out. What's a, what, what are some other ways that we can help well, out? I think you're off to a great start, Hippie, and, and you, know, you, you single-handedly stood up Space Force Association, you've been pulling this all together, I, you know, that's incredible, and, and I'm actually deeply honored that you, you invited me here today. I think, you know, moving forward, you know, 
becoming a major entity, and it sounds like you're doing that already, you know, similar to the Air Force Association with the Air Domain folks and, and other professional associations, I think that's, you're off to a great start, right? You have to embed within the community that you're serving. Um, you have to be a thought leader in that, in that community. Um, and, and by trying to drive some of these changes, you know, bringing the acquisitions community in with the warfighter community at the same time so that they can have these discussions. Simple thoughts like that can drive some significant changes, right? I, I, I guess I'll call it the butterfly effect, right, for space. Um, you get the right people in the right room and, and beautiful things can happen. Um, and then, you know, working across the Space Force leadership, um, both in the military as well as uh, other aspects of the government and their close advisors, right? I'll say my like FFRDCs and, and things like that. I think working across those to, to instill thought and to mentor the, those leaders and, and provide your experience as an association, you know, a group of people that have hundreds of years of experience combined, I think that's going to be very important. Um, and then the other thing I would, I would really like to emphasize is don't just look at the top echelon. Right? I, I fundamentally believe that we need to be looking at all levels to instill a solid culture for Space Force and how we move forward. And so that's going to drive us to need to engage, you know, at the academies or at the, the universities where the ROTC students are. Um, to engage junior members as they, they first enter the service so that they can understand the importance of space and how it plays in across those domains. I think Space Force Agency is unique or association is uniquely postured to do that. Um, and so, you know, that's where I would encourage you guys to move forward. No, that's, those are great words, Yosh. And, and again, sir, I, I thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule for, for chatting with us today and providing your insights. They mean a lot to us and they're extremely valuable. Uh, so thanks again for your time. Any, any last words before we conclude here? No, I just want to thank you again, Hippie. I mean, this is, it's an, an incredible opportunity um, just to try to, you know, have this conversation. So I appreciate the invite. You bet. Thanks again. And we will talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Hey, uh, we're still recording because I didn't hit record at the very beginning. So I'm going to do the intro one more time. Okay. And we will go through, uh, I'll read through the intro and then uh, I'll ask the first question and then I'll be able to edit it after the first question. Okay. And, and then I might be quick. I might, I might get off the phone really quickly because I've got a 10 o'clock meeting. So I apologize if, if you, you see me drop real quick, that's why. It's all good. Thanks, Joe. Okay. Thank you for listening in. As we heard from Air Force retired Colonel Brian Yoshimoto and his 25 years of experience working in the space domain. He's an industry leader steeped in the mission and had a unique perspective on the importance of this new service. For more information about the U.S. Space Force, please go to ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service.